What do you think of when you think of emerging markets? Well, if portfolios are any indication, many investors actually shy away. Emerging markets, or EMs, are unfamiliar territory to most, and that fear of the unknown may be enough to create cold feet for some investors. So what makes a country emerging, and why are we talking about them? More than two dozen countries are classified as emerging markets, but no two are exactly alike. They often come with more risk, and they can be a source of growth and certainly diversification in a portfolio. On this episode of The Bid, we'll speak with Gordon Frazier. He's Portfolio Manager for Emerging Markets within BlackRock's Fundamental Active Equity Group. We'll discuss the outlook for emerging market stocks broadly in 2020, where he sees opportunity, and why we think now is the time to take a closer look. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Gordon, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. So, Gordon, you're an emerging markets portfolio manager, and many people probably think that they understand and know what exactly an emerging market is, but it's maybe not as intuitive or exactly what people think. How do you define it? Many people think an emerging market's about wealth. They think, you know, rich countries are developed and the poorer countries are all emerging. That's a bit of a misconception, actually. It's not really about wealth. In emerging markets, you've got some very rich countries like Qatar or the UAE, together with quite poor countries like India or Pakistan. And it's also not about technological development, which a lot of people think. In emerging markets, Korea is extremely developed from a technological standpoint. So what really defines an emerging market is actually how developed stock market is. So index providers look at things like how liquid the market is, how well established the settlement systems are, the custodial systems are, the things that kind of really make the market function. And they analyze that and they classify markets into different buckets. So the markets in the world that are the most developed are called developed markets and places like US or Canada, parts of Europe, even Hong Kong, where I hail from, and Singapore are developed markets. The ones that are a little less established from a market standpoint fall in the emerging market bucket. So China, India, Brazil are some of the well-known ones, but also some smaller ones like Colombia or Peru. And the least established markets are actually frontier markets. So these are ones that are very illiquid. Some countries in Africa would fall into that bucket like Nigeria, Kenya, or even Vietnam and Asia. So that's how we look at it. It's by index classification and it's about how well a market functions, not how rich or poor the people are. And so how market functions might also affect the information that's available of it or how you can kind of engage in coming to views about it. What are some of the ways that you think investing in emerging markets is different than investing in developed markets? I've been an EM investor all my life, so I can't really tell you how it is investing in developed markets. But (laughs) from my perspective, first of all, there's a lot more countries. Emerging markets, there's 25 countries in the index. They've all got their own currency. So unlike in Europe, where a lot of countries have a euro, They all have their own currency. You've got big commodity exporters like Brazil or Russia, big commodity importers like Turkey. So it's a really varied set in emerging markets. And all these countries have their own economic cycle. So the first point is that really EMs have their own cycle and you actually can add a lot of value in emerging markets through choosing which country you're going to invest in, doing so-called asset allocation. That's the first difference to developed markets where that doesn't really matter as much. The other thing that's really interesting, MC, about emerging markets 
is it's just much more stock level dispersion. So in emerging markets, there's an amazing statistic that three quarters of companies, so 75% of companies, see their share price move by 40% in a year. It's just an incredible level of dispersion of stock returns. So more country dispersion, more stock dispersion, all of that's great for an active investor. And that's why I'm glad that I'm an EM investor, not a developed market investor. And emerging markets companies, similarly, are probably pretty different than developed market companies in terms of disclosure and probably the context in which they operate. So how does that shape the kind of research you can do? And what do you see as the major differences between covering companies in EM? I guess in short, you just need to do a lot more research. <laughs> You're quite right. I mean, most developed market companies, if you think about it, they don't have a controlling shareholder. So they've got a lot of institutional and retail shareholders. They're typically run by an independent board. If you contrast that with emerging markets, usually most companies are run by a first or maybe a second generation entrepreneur. They will typically control the board they will drive most of the strategy of the company. They will be responsible for hiring the management. And that's just a pretty different proposition. It means they tend to be a little bit more racy, a little bit more aggressive. They might also be a little bit more economical with the truth, frankly. <laughs> I often tell a funny story to people that I keep a whole lot of business cards on my desk of management that have kind of misled me over time. So there's a good and a bad side of that. They're more aggressive, but sometimes they also might mislead you because of this. There's less information so you need to do a lot more research. And that's the opportunity as well as the curse. So as you talk about the extra research that you have to do to effectively cover emerging markets companies, it sounds like a good investor really could have an edge. And in developed markets, we're increasingly concerned, or active investors are increasingly concerned, that there isn't much edge left to really create alpha or excess returns. But actually, emerging markets haven't performed that well in the past few years. So what's the deal? Yeah, that's a fair observation. The last decade has been pretty tough for emerging markets. But investors with a slightly longer memory will remember that the early 2000s were absolutely sensational. So, you know, 2000 to 2010 was fantastic for emerging markets. The 2010s was pretty poor with not much overall return and very much overshadowed by the performance of developed markets and in particular the S&P 500. So really there's been a couple of things going on, especially lately, that have been a problem. I characterize it as sort of two key headwinds. The first one was just how well the U.S. economy was doing. The U.S. economy was growing so strongly. The Federal Reserve was hiking interest rates because the U.S. was doing so well. That was leading to a lot of pressure on emerging markets because emerging markets are actually quite big borrowers of dollar loans and dollar debt, both the countries themselves and also the companies. So when U.S. rates go up, that's like an increase in your cost of borrowing and at least a fall in demand. So that was one big issue, which is essentially easing away. The other one was trade. Emerging markets still have a very export-led growth model in general. And the pressures that were happening on trade because of the trade war between the US and China was really hurting demand in EM. It was causing corporates to maintain very low levels of inventory. It was causing corporates to hold back on the capital expenditure plans. And these two things were really depressing demand and causing an issue for EM earnings. So those are the two kind of major headwinds we've been fighting in EM over the latter half of the last decade. And potentially, actually, both of those headwinds are starting to fade. So you mentioned that you see trade headwinds lessening, and we as a firm see that in 2020. 
it seems like trade tensions have sort of moved sideways. And so we've talked about how this will cause sectors and markets that were beaten down by trade tensions last year to actually recover this year. How much of a stressor is the U.S.-China trade war to emerging markets broadly right now? I think it was more than the actual war itself. It was fear of something bigger. Uncertainty is always the worst thing. Mm-hmm. So the tariffs that were imposed so far and have been slightly rolled back on Chinese exports weren't the biggest problem. It was a fear of much higher tariffs and more onerous restrictions in the future that was holding back investment, making companies keep those inventory levels lean. So that was really the problem. And as you said, as that kind of trade war paused or we had a detente, you see companies start to restock. You see them start to start investment again. And so you can spot that actually in a number of indicators, things like technology capex, tool orders, even the price of some industrial commodities will show you that these pressures were starting to ease. And that's why as a firm, we're more optimistic on growth heading into 2020. You mentioned that we're optimistic on growth. Well, we're seeing slightly slowing growth in China. And so given that China is the largest representation in emerging markets indices, what extent does its fate determine the direction of the space overall? China is pretty important in EM for sure. It's about 30% of the equity index. Some countries really rely on China. I think China has been seeing slowing growth. And maybe in the first half of this year, growth will also disappoint because of the recent coronavirus outbreak. But I think absent that, you would have actually started to see a pickup in China for those reasons discussed on the improvement on trade and improvement on CapEx. So we were expecting to see growth pick up in China And that might now need to be deferred to the second half of the year. Mm -hmm. But China's not the be-all and end-all. There's lots of emerging markets that really have very little interaction with China. I mean, take South Africa. That's a tip of Africa. really has nothing to do with China. Turkey, very independent of China, for instance. And actually, there's some big winners like Mexico. Mexico has been winning share of U.S. imports even before a new U.S. MCA trade deal has been signed. Mexico's share of U.S. imports has gone up by one percentage point over the last two years, taking share from China. So it's not a deal breaker that China's been a little slow, and we'd expect China to start to actually pick up maybe in the second half of the year. Shifting gears a little bit to talk about your experience as an investor in emerging markets, I'm curious, what do you think are sort of the major pitfalls that some investors fall into in this space? I don't know if I'd use the term pitfall, but maybe biggest misunderstanding, perhaps, about emerging markets is that people think they're buying growth. Mm-hmm. When people think of emerging markets, they really think about that sort of poor country narrative catching up with the rest of the world. That's not really what they get nowadays. People think they're buying growth and they sometimes get disappointed when the economic growth that they see reported in the newspapers doesn't translate into the market returns. So when people are buying emerging markets, what they should really be thinking about is buying the potential to add a lot of alpha. And by alpha, I mean outperformance versus the index. Why can you do that? You can do that because you have all these different countries that have very different macroeconomic cycles. So you can allocate capital to countries in the early stage and take away capital from a late stage and add value that way. You can make money out of that incredible level of stock dispersion. So when we look at emerging markets, we don't see some kind of great airy-fairy growth story, we just see a lot of potential for alpha outperformance. And that's what really excites us. And we think some people don't really understand that opportunity fully. 
So you've been investing in emerging markets for 14 years. And what's changed in the asset class over that time frame? Do you see more people who sort of understand what it's all about now than you did when you first started? It's changed a lot, actually, MC. So when I first started, I'd say it was really about access. Let's call it emerging market version 1.0. Version 1.0 was all about, you know, get me exposure to these fast growing markets. I don't really care too much which country I'm buying, which kind of stock I'm buying, you know, get me in. And the economic model was actually about kind of growth conversions. It was very much that kind of poor country becoming richer economic story, copying what has happened in the developed world, trying to do it faster, quicker, better. And when I look at emerging markets today, I look at alpha. But from, from an economic standpoint, the business model's changed. It's really actually about innovation and leadership. So whereas emerging markets was just catching up with what was happening in the developed world, it's actually now starting to take leadership. And my absolute favorite example about this is payments in China. Hmm. So if you imagine I'm in Beijing with my family, let's say for a holiday, and we get a taxi ride, we go to a restaurant, maybe I take my kids to get a haircut, then we go to the cinema and we go back to a hotel, having taken in some of the sites. We can do all of that without using a single note without using a single piece of plastic, using WeChat Pay or Alipay or one of the other payment mechanisms. So China's just actually skipped the plastic age, which is really incredible to think about it. And just to throw some kind of stats around that, the total value of payments through these payment platforms in China in the last 12 months was 31 trillion US dollars. That's actually five times the amount of Visa and MasterCard process in the US. Wow. So it's actually already bigger. And it's all digital and it's all instant. So China's actually leapfrogged, you know, where America is as one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world. You know, the exact same payment stuff is happening in India. It's happening in Indonesia. And all these countries are just skipping straight to the digital age. So EM's changed in that respect. It's about innovation. It's about leadership. And it's not just about copying the West anymore. So it sounds like it's a pretty interesting time, to your point, to be investing in emerging markets. And what are some of the other reasons that we're talking about this now? You mentioned some of the opportunities created by technological advancement. What else? Yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of structural argument and a cyclical argument. We talked about a cyclical one a little earlier on. There's been a couple of really strong headwinds for emerging markets, trade, U.S. monetary policy. And both those are turning around. So the cyclical story is, I think, quite strong. But there's a really interesting structural story as well. And just to unpack this a little bit, it's about essentially the share of corporate profits as a percentage of GDP. I'll explain this a little bit. So if you think about an economy that produces a certain amount of output, you've got two ways of producing that output, labor and capital. If you look at the developed world, the share of the economic output that is accruing to capital and the shareholders of those companies is really high. It's actually at a 20-year high. So the share of corporate profits, the GDP in the developed world is at a record high. In emerging markets, it's actually at a record low. It's never been lower. And just to explain why that's the case, and it goes back to our discussion earlier, MC, about you know, lost decade for emerging markets. You know, during the boom times, we built so much capital up in emerging markets, so much money came in that when demand disappointed, companies were left with excess capital and the profitability fell and the margins fell and the corporate profits of GDP fell. 
So that's really interesting because you had 10 years of kind of work out of this and you're buying potentially into assets where the profitability is below the long-term potential. So if you combine that kind of long-term structural argument for buying these earnings, let's say cheap in inverted commas, together with some of the cyclical tailwinds, that's why it's an interesting time to be thinking about emerging market allocations quite seriously. You mentioned that emerging markets have been a more volatile asset class and the sort of ups and downs. What helps manage those ups and downs? Oh, it's tough. I mean, so there's two real types of volatility that we face you know, day to day. The first one is the volatility of the overall index. So just thinking of it in terms of the drawdown, so the amount of decline from peak to trough during a year, almost every year you get a drawdown of about 15, 16, 17% in emerging markets. That's almost every year. So there's big index level volatility. And really the only way to manage that is by trying to outperform in those events and trying to deliver a better outcome through selecting the right securities, through, through managing your exposure to the market. So let's call it the bad volatility MC. The good type of volatility is the dispersion. That's the you know, country A doing a lot better than country B, but stock A doing a lot better than stock B. And that dispersion between the countries and the variation of returns between the stocks is good volatility because that's your kind of feeding ground for active investors. So one type's bad, leads to higher volatility for investors. The other type's good because it gives you the potential at least for adding value and outperformance. We could keep talking about this for so much longer, but I'm going to end with a rapid-fire round of quick questions. you ready? Yes, I am. Okay, so emerging markets sound very eventful. What's been your scariest moment in the space? I think it's probably my wife's scariest moment rather than mine. And this was after we had kids, I've got to say, so I feel a bit guilty about this now. But I went to Ukraine twice during a conflict with the Russian rebels and the Ukrainian government when the Russian-backed rebels invaded the Donbass. Yeah, and I went there twice to try and figure out what was going on. And I had to have an armed guard each time. I actually got to kind of play war correspondent. I dialed into BlackRock's Daily Call live from Ukraine with a on-the-ground update, which is so one of the scariest moments, but probably also one of the highlights as well. It sounds like you've met a lot of memorable people in this area. Who's the most memorable? I've met Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey. He's pretty memorable. But I think probably the one I was happiest to meet was actually Bill Clinton, who's Definitely not an emerging market person, but he did attend a conference uh, in Russia and I had the opportunity to kind of shake his hand and talk to him for a few minutes. And I was privileged to get a photo. I had one copy and I, um, it's a funny story. I actually, I gave it to my grandfather who was in hospital to kind of cheer him up and he had dementia. So towards the end of his life, the staff would ask him, who's in the photo, John? His name was John. And he'd say, that's Bill Clinton. And you had no idea who the other person was, which was me, of course. But it's a sad and funny story that he remembered Bill rather than his grandson towards the end. And how many emerging markets have you been to? I think I'm in the mid-30s, 35, 36, I think, if I haven't forgotten one or two, which I think pretty much covers all of the emerging markets with a decent functioning stock exchange. But I guess what's more interesting is that, as I mentioned earlier, I've got some kids, I've got three children, and they're now old enough to travel to emerging markets and so I take my four-year-old, my seven-year-old, and my 10-year-old around emerging markets, and I think they've done 10, which is something I'm pretty proud of as a parent. Especially if you're under 10 years old. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today, Gordon. This has been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, MC. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock. 
is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL, 230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.